Hello and welcome to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Asida, and I'm joined by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. It's great to be here, Jacob. It's great to be here. In order to get justice, you have to participate in a public prosecution. And so that means that at some point you have to admit that your bank was swindled and you have to do it in a public place. That was Professor Chris Hufenagel of the University of California, Berkeley. Today we are talking about the differences between crime on and offline, what justice, or the lack thereof it, can look like in cyberspace, and why it makes sense for hacked companies to keep it to themselves. But first, let's go into some background on our criminal justice system today, and how cybersecurity complicates it. The most significant departure from offline crime to online crime concerns the question of jurisdiction. Think of jurisdiction as any and all law that applies within the borders of a country or state. In most cases, a court decides what jurisdiction applies and what laws to refer to. More often than not, the jurisdiction is dependent on where the crime takes place. However, cybercrime confounds this. Accessibility to the internet muddies the where of crimes, and this is doubly difficult when the suspected criminal is in another country's jurisdiction. It's possible to request people who have warrants for their arrest from friendly countries with whom we have an extradition treaty. An extradition treaty allows participants to send over their citizens to be tried within another country's jurisdiction. But this is not always standard. For countries like Russia and China, where a large amount of cybercrime originates, the U.S. does not have an extradition treaty, which makes trying suspected hackers, fraudsters, and thieves in the U.S. basically impossible. And on top of these jurisdictional issues, our legal system struggles to effectively process crimes committed over the internet. Law enforcement agencies, for instance, have to retrain their officers on how to best collect evidence, conduct computer forensic investigations, and collaborate with other law enforcement agencies abroad. It takes time to build up expertise in these skills, and we've only had widespread cybercrime for a few decades. Additionally, decision makers like prosecutors, judges, and juries need to be brought into the 21st century so they can make fair and legally sound conclusions. Juries will be presented with evidence that may cite IP addresses and log files and other esoteric aspects of cybercrime. Are the jurors familiar with all these concepts? Are the judges familiar with these concepts? Making a clear-cut decision may also be complicated by the laws that we have in place to address cybercrime. If you're curious about these laws, give a listen to episode 4 where we dive into the most significant one, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA. To put it shortly, our legal process is hundreds of years old, and much of the technology that we are using is recent. We haven't worked out all the kinks yet. But legal professionals are not the only people who have yet to catch up with the times. For many victims, a general lack of understanding of cybercrime leads to many crimes never being reported. The average person, or small business owner, does not know where and how to report cybercrimes and are unlikely to see any tangible result out of their efforts if they do. Lack of reporting also means that there's a dearth of information on crime, which makes investigations more difficult for law enforcement overall. With cybercrime and computer fraud on the rise, let's turn to our guest to get a better picture. My name is Chris Hufnagel, and I'm an adjunct professor appointed both in the schools of information and the law school at UC Berkeley I teach about uh, broadly about the regulation of technology. So I teach privacy, computer crime, cyber uh, security, and even consumer protection, because all of these things ultimately relate to how we 
regulate and uh, try to control um, invention. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. It's my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out to me. So today we're really looking forward to discussing sort of computer crimes that aren't committed like hacking, but crimes that are facilitated through use of computers. So we're going to go through a couple of questions that we had for you. We're going to start off with something easy. Specifically, how does online crime legally distinguish itself from offline crime? And is there a court for it? Yeah, so this is a core question um, on your topic here. That is how to define computer crime. And so I, I basically view it in three different ways. One is that there are pure computer crimes, as in um, computer misuse uh, that only is possible with computing and networks. So one example of that would be a, a denial of service attack. That is a, a crime against the network, if you will, done by computers and computers are affected. You might then think about situations where the computer is a tool of crime. And the most prominent example of that is the trading of online pornography. About 60% of computer online computer crime cases deal with this problem. And of course, trading child pornography is illegal both online and offline. And if it could be done with magazines or it could be done with JPEGs. So that's an example where the computer makes an offline crime much easier to commit um, at, a, at a high volume. And then finally, computers are often the subject of investigation because they contain evidence of crime. So you could think of that as computers being a computer crime container with evidence that is um, very important for both attribution, but also to do things like establish mental states of suspects and what they actually did with their computer. If someone is prosecuted uh, for a crime that is using a computer as a tool or is using a computer as a facilitation of a crime, where would that trial take place? Computers are spread all over the place. You could be distant from your your botnet that is doing a DOS for a DDoS, for instance. Um, where does this justice actually take place? Well, the justice rarely happens, but it when it does, it's typically where <laughs> the defendant um, uh, resides. So um, even uh, let, let's say a computer hacker in San Francisco. Um, steals credit card numbers from a bank in New York and then uses them to buy things in Asia or let's say Europe, you, you, you typically arrest and charge that person in California, despite the fact that the crime occurs all over the place. And in fact, this is what you're, what you're pointing at here is a kind of fundamental problem is that when, you know, law enforcement is, is mainly a local uh, phenomenon and effort um, but the internet makes it possible for victims and offenders to be uh, in different countries. And so that's a harder nut to crack than, you know, a simple assault or any other crime that involves people in the same proximity. So when people are outside of the legal U.S. jurisdiction, how exactly does, well, the U.S. seek justice? Is there any court cases or anything like that? that has set some sort of precedent about what we are willing to enforce and try to, you know, seek justice on? Yeah, there's a lot the U.S. government can do. It was once thought that it was kind of impossible to deal with, let's say, Russian hackers or hackers anywhere in the world that were outside the U.S. The world is so interconnected that one way or another we can get people. Um, the one typical way 
Um, it's started in the President Obama administration is also being used by uh, President Trump is simply to indict foreign hackers. And once they're indicted and they're sought by US law enforcement, countries that are friendly to the United States will uh, look for these offenders. And in reality, what happens is they go on vacation. You know, people want to leave Ukraine or Romania and they travel to Greece or they travel to Italy and we pick them up with Interpol. This happened a number of times. We've actually arrested a number of hackers we thought could not be reached. But ultimately, if you think about human nature, people eventually want to do things like travel and go on vacation. And that, um, that is an opportunity to pick them up. We've tried this strategy with Chinese hackers, and it hasn't worked as well, um, for obvious reasons. <laughs> Bigger country, and um, there's less of a need to actually leave the country in order to you know, enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we wanted to focus on in particular was uh, computer fraud. So in general, what are some of the most common ways ordinary people make themselves vulnerable to fraud? Well, it's impossible to do banking nowadays without doing online banking. And um, it's not well known, but banks don't even run their own websites. They're all outsourced. You, you know, if you use a, wow. an app to, use your, uh, to access your bank, chances are that app was made by some third party, might not have that great of, uh, of security. And so um, there's a number of ways one can pry money out of bank accounts. Um, um, the simplest way is to engage in some type of um, uh, wire transfer fraud. And the good news for most consumers is that that crime is focused on small businesses. Um, the, the reason why is, you know, small businesses tend to have checking accounts with five-figure sums in them. And so, you know, fraudsters really go after small businesses. And what they try to do is trick the small business into wiring a payment to a, um, to a vendor who is really, uh, the vendor is really an attacker. Um, so a, a typical attack is you send a company, um, a bill and then you call them up and say, Hey, you know, um, we've changed our bank information instead of sending it to bank X, send it to bank Y and uh, bank, bank Y of course is like bank of China. Um, with, with regards to consumers, um, you know, there, it, the, the fraud is, is typically around, um, new account and, um, identity theft and credit card fraud. And the key there is to really watch your accounts. Um, you, it makes sense to use things like two-factor authentication with your bank. And most banks will let you set up like an email alert. So if anything, um, let's say more than $100 leaves your account, you get an email pretty quickly. If you get in touch with your bank, you can get that money back. If you wait and um, don't do anything, um, you might lose the money. So would you say this problem is widespread? And if so, what sort of recourses really exist in the event that you are hacked? Maybe you're a small business. Is it always just going to be refunded? Do we have to start getting sort of cyber fraud insurance here? Well, the the truth of the matter is, is that small businesses and businesses generally are the bigger victims. Um, What um, they lose in these frauds, they lose tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions of dollars. Um, and they often don't recover it, and their insurance company, their insurance policies often don't cover the loss. So it's one of these weird things where we, we often think about consumer victims, but it's actually businesses that are taking it on the nose harder than consumers are. You don't know about it because most businesses won't tell you. Um, mm-hmm. They find it, it, from their perspective, 
it's better to write down the loss and to move on than to make a big deal about it because it undermines customer trust if you learn that your bank lost $10 million or if you learn that your um, vendor lost several million dollars in this type of fraud. So they typically eat the loss because um, in most cases, insurance doesn't cover it. The, the fraud is considered um, what's known as a control problem, as in you had an employee and your employee was tricked into changing this bank information and sending, this inf- sending the money to the wrong person. And that's, that's a problem with your own control and processes. It's not like an accident. And therefore, uh, a lot of insurance companies will deny that claim. So when one of these businesses uh, takes this hit and absorbs it, um, at what point do businesses actually, you know, seek recourse or seek ability to have some kind of justice? Or is it more often than not just accept the loss and move on? Is there ever, is there ever a, a, a limit by which this is too much, we have to do something about it? So that's a great question. And there's a lot of incentives against um, going after hackers from the private sector. Um, So my experience has been that most companies write down these losses and they move on. And the reason why, uh, well, there's several reasons why. One is that um, in order to get justice, you have to participate in the public prosecution. Mm -hmm. And so that means that at some point you have to admit that your bank was swindled and you have to do it in a public place. That is like a courtroom. Most companies don't want to do that. Um, It undermines trust. The second issue is, is that it's very difficult to recover the funds. So why go through the effort and the embarrassment to get justice when you can't get the money back? What you'll find is um, the money is often spent by the time the hacker is tracked down. So I'm part of several law enforcement groups that, that um, are working on computer crime. And, uh, and the crazy thing that happens at these events is the, um, like a U.S. attorney will show up. And, and he or she will say, we really want your cases. We want you to come to us and work with us on prosecuting people. So literally the prosecutors are going to businesses and saying, please tell us about these crimes and please cooperate with us. And the businesses are still a little too afraid um, to do so. And how do you think that reluctance to share information impacts the larger environment where hackers operate and conduct fraud? Well, the, the reality, you know, the knock-on effects of this is, is if you live in a country, um, let, let's say you live in Romania or Ukraine or, and, um, and so on, um, you can make a living doing this. You can make a good living doing it. And it's a relatively r- low-risk um, uh, form of crime. Mm-hmm. So the common problem with computer crime is what I refer to as the cash-out problem. You know, you can be the best hacker in the world and steal information, steal credit card numbers, uh, break into bank accounts and so on. But ultimately, you have to get cash out of the system you have, so that you can pay your bills. <laughs> um, and uh, that is actually the hardest part of all of this. Is So it's a, bit, it's a sort of like natural bottleneck in, in laundering yeah. the money? That's exactly right. If, if I needed to get a thousand credit card numbers, I could do it in minutes. Um, I could charge stuff on those credit cards and, you know, get laptops or whatever it is I wanted. But at the end of the day, I can't eat a laptop. <laughs> so, and I can't use a laptop to pay my rent. You need cash. So cyber criminals engage in expensive 
um, uh, schemes to extract money from a crime, it's not so easy to do that in the United States because ultimately U.S. law enforcement can get you. Um, it's easier to do outside the United States because you can find banks that uh, will look the other way when uh, people complain about fraud and the like. It's referred so this... to as bulletproof banking. Oh, yeah, I've actually heard about that. Uh, this isn't exactly what I wanted to talk about, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. Um, how do you feel about like things like cryptocurrencies and just in general, do you do you feel this has facilitated a greater use of fraud? Does this offer an even greater problem to overcome because it it's sort of like a easier way to launder your money? Well, so um, cryptocurrencies are a form of value transfer, and you know, cash facilitates crime too. Um, any value transfer is going to have crime involved in it. Um, so, you know, why single out cryptocurrencies? I think that you know there are some reasons. Um, you know, there's clearly people are engaged. There are some people engaging in uh, big time tax evasion uh, using cryptocurrency and the like. But, you know, the the interesting thing about cryptocurrencies and, and my own students here at Cal do this is that we can re-identify the, the transfers even in networks that claim to be private. So it, it it's not cryptocurrencies are not anonymous. Uh, IRS and other law enforcement agencies use um, they use a company called chain analysis that can re-identify a lot of those transfers. And so, you know, it's one thing if you engage in one or two tra- transfers, you're unlikely to be identified. But if you are dependent, you know, if you are um, seriously engaged in fraud, it's just a matter of time before they're going to be able to piece apart the transactions and figure out who you are. That's pretty interesting. You're working pretty close with some technical sides of things. Do you think it's very important to have a computer science background in understanding computer fraud? It, I, I mean, I think it helps. I don't actually. Um, I, I'm, I'm trained as a lawyer. Well, you see, I mean, you seem to understand the problem very well, though. Regardless, <laughs> I'm, I'm in a multidisciplinary school. So, in my school of information, my colleagues are computer scientists, economists, and so on. So we we, we learn from each other. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's good to see the interplay of all those domains, rather than you know seeing cybersecurity as like a domain in isolation. So that's good to hear always. Yeah. Um, so another question, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned before about insurance companies viewing it as improper implementation of controls and therefore being a company's fault if they sort of get hacked. That's kind of an interesting precedent to set. It's almost like it would never be the, it would almost seems like the insurance company would never have to pay anything, honestly. If that was the case, there's always a control that's misconfigured somewhere. Well, interestingly, what I hear from Insurance, uh, the insurance industry is they're actually losing money on cyber policies. So I, I hear two narratives. One narrative is many of the claimants, many of the victims of computer crime can't collect on their, um, on their policies. And that would seem to be substantiated by the case law. There's a lot of case law where uh, companies, especially retailers um, and, and small businesses have sued insurance companies and they have lost and those are those cases are publicly available but on the same time when i talk to people in the insurance industry about trends and where they think things are going they say they're losing money on these policies this is not something i've been able to figure out i know that there are some high profile cases where there have been payouts like um, in the home depot breach home depot did collect against its cyber policy 
um, uh, a, a very large number in the tens of millions. And that paid for, you know, something like half of the cost of the Home Depot breach, uh, w- which is great. Um, but there's a whole lot of other cases where even sophisticated companies have not collected. And so what's really important when you, if you're a small business and you're thinking about getting a cyber policy is to think about your risks. And this is where people go astray. They, they have this idea in their head that, you know, some brilliant hacker is going to find a hole in their system and punch through it. No, no, no. Your, your threat really is probably more from insiders and specifically, it's going to be insiders who fall for phishing schemes. Um, so you have to get a rider to your insurance policy that says that phishing um, is covered. Otherwise, it's defined as a control problem. And you have just paid a lot of money for a policy you can't collect on. Mm-hmm. Going off of the insurance question, uh, when there's a large breach and there's a, lo- a large loss of information... Um, how do you quantify that in monetary terms for a payout, for instance? If you are a small business and you lose 100 credit card numbers or you lose 100 social security numbers, how does that factor in dollar to dollar money-wise? Well, um, there's a lot of direct costs that you can measure as a victim of a breach. One is your forensics firm. Forensics firms cost a fortune. And you can count both your own internal forensics and external forensics and in adding up the numbers. Um, also, when you, when a, let's say you're a retailer and you have a credit card number breach, typically what happens is the credit card companies come in and they force you to do an audit and um, an assessment of your payment system. And that costs a lot of money. It's a five-figure um, exercise. Uh, so you can write that down. And then in really large breaches, like the Home Depot breach or the Target breach, banks will actually come after you. And they will say, you know, you're, you messed up your credit card system. And as a result, we had to reissue um, 5,000 credit cards. And by the way, it costs us $75 to uh, reissue a credit card. Um, and so the banks will actually come after you and get you to pay for their costs of replacing all those credit card numbers. Uh, credit card, the actual plastic. Um, so it's pretty easy. Uh, it, earn, it turns out to be pretty easy to, to come to a number. But that's not counting any kind of consumer expenses, right? That's that's kind of like not in that calculation. Right, right, right. What about uh, sort of information that's less kind of quantifiable, more like personal identifiable information, like less a credit card number perhaps just like information about your identity on Facebook, do you, does that have a monetary value that would be assessed in like a fraud case? Or information that would tend to go towards your consumer consumer information, like what kind of things that you purchase? Yeah, it's much harder. Um, you know, generally speaking, courts don't see information uh, being stolen as something that causes injury to consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some exceptions to that. When, the, when data are stolen and it makes you very likely to be um, identity theft victim, courts are willing to say, yeah, that data were valuable and people were injured. You know, things like naked pictures and, you know, really sensitive information and then medical records. So, you know, things like the Anthem breach here in California are a big deal because courts are willing to say that that consumer data is actually uh, valuable. And so the Anthem breach will be 
a very, you know, that'll be a big number. Hmm. Well, so uh, I think for our listeners, uh, one of the things that we're trying to really push is the everyday little things that you should know navigating through navigating through this modern digital economy. So if if your personal information or anything important to you has been stolen or compromised, do you have any advice or, or tips that one should uh, take into account when they find out that something like that has happened? There's a lot one can do now that wasn't possible even 10 years ago. Um, but I, I think, you know, on the high level, what's most important is to pay attention to your primary email account. Um, and you want to have two-factor authentication on your primary email account um, because if a hacker can get access to it, um, they can do uh, perverse things to you. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the other is, of course, your bank account. You want to have two-factor on your bank account. And um, so the idea might even be that you have a, a high level of protection for one email address and maybe use another email address for your correspondence or just for buying things and the like. But right. once you realize that personal information has been stolen, um, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, and they range from merely calling up the consumer reporting agencies and filing a uh, fraud alert to doing things like getting a um, credit freeze, which can do a lot to protect you. Of course, the problem there is, is that credit, those credit interventions only protect you against credit card fraud. They don't protect you against, like, let's say someone who breaks into your bank account itself and extracts uh, money from your bank account. So I, I think the primary thing is to really protect your 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 number one your personal email account, and to use two factor for it. Um, it's getting easier and easier to use two factor. You can even you know you can get apps on your phone that'll do it, um, and then to watch your bank account closely. And there there are fantastic tools available now that weren't available just ten years ago, including you know getting text alerts or email alerts if if someone logs in. Um, and then there are, there are interesting services out there that will monitor to see if your personal information has been um, uh, is being sold on the dark web. Uh, so there's you know companies like LifeLock, and there's free free alternatives too. There are companies that will do this, uh, like Have I Been Pwned, uh, where you can just put your email address in and see if you know if anybody has stolen your email address and password. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, um, my pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. One of the things that, that Chris said that really stood out to me was was kind of uh, it's almost like a hopelessness to confronting cybercrime. There's there's not a lot of recourse. Um, no, it really did not <laughs> seem like there was. Right. Like the whole thing about, um, yeah, if you're a company and you've lost $500 million, that's something you should just have into your overhead and you mm -hmm. account for it and mm -hmm. you move on. Yeah, it was really dismal when he, I mean, bringing up the, like the cyber insurance, you know, he's he's saying like, yeah, the insurance companies aren't making money and the people who have plans don't seem to be getting a lot of money out of it. It's like, who's who's really benefiting here? This, is, right. this sounds like a lose-lose situation for everybody. Yeah, it's just a, a drag on every party involved, except for the, the criminals, obviously. Right, and that's the worst part is that it shows really no sign of stopping. If anything, it shows every right. sign of increasing in the next couple of years. Right, and so that 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 kind of, portends the like the portends the question of like at what point does this become such an issue that there has to be some major massive i don't know political cultural social change 
confronting this kind of crime. I mean, we've already kind of seen this a little bit with uh, Mueller's team indicting the 12 Russian hackers. But again, it falls into that situation of uh, not being actually able to grab them because, you know, they're in Russia. And unless they step into a place that there's an extradition treaty for the United States, that they're unlikely to ever face justice. So, uh, yeah, it's even even now we still aren't seeing like a way of actually reprimanding these people. Right. And I think going off of the the jurisdictional aspect of I think not only is there um, no recourse for taking on these big, huge hacks that happen from Russia or China, for instance, like like going back to the Mueller investigation that you mentioned, but for smaller crimes, Mm -hmm. there really is no recourse for the everyday average person listener of this podcast um, to do anything. If your computer is hit with a ransomware attack and you pay five hundred dollars. To that, to, to or six hundred dollars, seven hundred dollars to that ransomware attack. That's like a small amount of money that police aren't going to put a lot of effort into, and there's no real way that they can actually turn that case around and seek justice for you. So the Trump administration is pursuing more like a more aggressive sort of cyber policy that might allow for the possibility, or at least opening the door for something like hackbacks or hacking, at least in response to you being targeted, which might provide some sort of disincentive. It's still kind of in the formulation and hasn't exactly been applied yet. Um, it's interesting how that'll factor into things. I mean, we might be getting into a situation um, uh, where we discussed in a previous episode where you have like a sort of, you know, how they hired mercenaries to protect their ships, sort of a right. s- sort of a deal. Like, you know, if you're a private company, maybe you need to have some sort of aggressive cyber stance mm-hmm. to dissuade people from even trying to touch you. Right, right. Talk about like disin- disincentivizing you to hack their systems. But but it's even more questioning. Like, if you're a very small business, you know, maybe like a mom and pop shop to some extent. Of course. Um, yeah, because every everyone knows, like local general stores, um, you know, have a huge treasure trove of of information and and things to protect from Romanian hackers. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my, I, I my, love my, the idea yeah, of yeah. mom and pop. <laughs> yeah, that your mom and pop cyber store. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a small business. <laughs> we, we're just local Bitcoin miners here in this town. <laughs> we will be about at eighty seven. Um, so, yeah. Well, a smaller business sort of place. Um, you know, they might not have a, like a robust cybersecurity program. They might not even have. It's it's even more unlikely that they would be able to have mm-hmm. an aggressive sort of stance. So that might raise the question of some sort of more collective cybersecurity program in the future, right. or something like to disperse the risk. I mean, this is this is kind of off topic, but um, you know, there might be some sort of uh, like a cloud sort of solution, like a cloud net that could provide security for a large variety of people that are not having actual good cyber infrastructure for themselves, but. That is something that's you know still in the work. Oh right! Imagine a almost like a community bank, but it's like a community data vault in a way, sort you of. Um, it's kind of what I'm getting at. It's not exactly that, but it's. <laughs> I it's, guess I'm looking too uto- too utopian of here about having some kind of a you know beautiful social democracy of the internet where people from the community can store their information somewhere safe, almost like a a, a local bank or something like that, but. It would more likely be a larger corporation, probably like using Amazon Web Services, for instance, where small businesses can safely try to store their information than hosting it themselves. Yeah, that's what I was getting at a right, little right, bit right. more. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That, that was a little bit more elucidated than how I put it. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I mean, that. of course. Yeah, I mean, Amazon, their largest income is mm-hmm. from their web services, not their deliveries. Right, right. Um, so, you know, a good question to ask in, in light of all of this, do you think that there's going to be, you know, more reporting of these incidents, not just by like, you know, big government hacks, but just in general, like private companies, do you think they're going to have an incentive to report more? Well, I think just as time goes on and these attacks become more frequent, which they are, you know, data mm-hmm. suggests, at least the data that we have, that it, it is increasing and that 
more and more money per year is being lost to cybercrime and fraud and things like that. Um, I think people will begin to report more, mm-hmm. but currently there's not anything that incentivizes anyone to really do so. Do you, you think know, it's not like it's not like it's a, an incentive, you know, like some sort of like a bug bounty or something. Well, not exactly that. Just like a way of like anonymizing, you know, your your reporting. So like you could mm-hmm. report this like, oh, my company was damaged by this, but we don't want this necessarily being super public. Right. Right. And I think I think that already happens to some extent with mm-hmm. larger companies it who is, yeah. have like the bandwidth to do that. Yeah. So if you're a, you know, target, for instance, mm-hmm. who lost a lot of their customer data and a lot of money to a large hack, mm-hmm. um, I'm positive that the fbi got involved and that you know law enforcement were involved in that large process but i don't think that same attention i think you're right i don't think that same attention would be afforded to smaller you know smaller the little guy you know yeah i i think right. that's fair um i i do think that there might be in a, I, I do think that there will be more reporting in the future but i actually mm-hmm. think the impact of it won't actually be particularly helpful right i mean i think we're gonna come down to this bottleneck again of just the fact that you're unable to really you know seek out these people mm-hmm and uh, right, and if you think about like local law enforcement, mm-hmm. like or federal law enforcement, or or whomever you go to to sure. talk to about this, like it, it's so frequent, it's so comparatively easy to commit these kind of crimes, mm-hmm. and the perpetrators aren't like it. There's not, I think, like going back to the bottleneck question, like there is a bottleneck of amount of people you can have in a city that commit crimes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's only so many people who could possibly commit crimes. Sure. Right. At, at which point, like the entire city is committing crimes against yeah, itself. Exactly. In which there's just anarchy. Yeah. But. With with the advent of, of just the access that everyone has to everyone else, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about people in your city. Mm-hmm. You have to worry about people from everywhere in the world, from China and Russia, right. you know, Eastern, Western Europe. Yeah. Like Your security boundaries are basically endless. Yeah, exactly, which I think is well beyond the, the scope of most law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I think even, like, national law enforcement, like the United States' FBI, like, it, it's, a, it's a lot to cover. Sure, and so I think any solution that that comes will have to be um, a solution that takes into account law enforcement, but also like defense, personal defense. So I've talked before about the idea of the balkanization of the internet, the breaking up of the internet right. into smaller internets. Right, right. But I've talked about it mainly from the side of uh, other countries not wanting to have like the free and open internet of the West for the most part. But uh, that does raise a sort of question: if you are able to more safeguard your own cyber infrastructure by having a balkanized internet maybe that would provide a greater defense for you know a lot of these uh, private entities operating in in western countries that would actually have the if you want to be able to access this internet you're going to be within a zone that we have jurisdiction in right that might right. be something you might see in the coming years especially if it start if you, if we do see this balkanization i think that wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that to happen eventually mm-hmm. right right it would definitely make law enforcement's job a lot easier uh, yeah it certainly would but uh, <laughs> that's you know that's a ways off. Uh, just a uh, just some food for thought in the in terms of the future. Mm. Well, thank you for joining us. Join us next time for the next episode of Decrypted. Remember to follow us on Twitter. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Recommend it to your friends. You know we continually try to update for the most recent news, trying to keep you know what's what's in the mainstream in terms of cybersecurity. Right. Thank you so much, Jacob. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dayton. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorps program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. (laughs) 